please turn in your Bibles to the book of James, to the book of James, chapter 1. Before I begin with the preaching this morning, I just want to express my gratitude to Pastor Ben and the elders for the invitation this morning to deliver God's word to you. Um, For those of you that are guests today, um, our senior pastor is out of town and normally I have the privilege of leading our congregational singing and today I also have the privilege of preaching and so it's a a different kind of Sunday. I just wanted to kind of make a mention of that. But we're going to be spending our time in the book of James this morning. And just by way of introduction, I want to give you some context about where we are in James. James is a short New Testament book or epistle. It's considered to be the earliest epistle that was written In verse 1 of James chapter 1, we read that the author identifies himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So many scholars and pastors agree that James that is identified here is likely the half-brother of Jesus Christ. If you will recall in the scriptures, James is recorded to not have believed in Jesus as the Messiah during Jesus' ministry on earth. But then later on, we see that James is one of the first people that Christ revealed himself to after the resurrection. James was one who got to behold the resurrected Christ, the one whom we've sung about this morning. And in the book of Acts, we also see that James becomes a prominent leader in the early church in Jerusalem. He presides over the Jerusalem council. His leadership and authoritative style is sensed in the book of James. There is over 50 imperative commands, 50 commands in this short letter, but it's also characterized by a gentle and loving pastoral tone. James demonstrates his love and his care for for believers in Christ by the many times that he refers to his hearers, the ones that he's writing to, as my beloved brothers. James' primary audience is Jewish believers in Jesus Christ. This is indicated by the designation in verse 1. He writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So because of this, this letter has many Jewish elements, mainly in its wisdom literary style. Sometimes the book of James is referred to as the New Testament book of Proverbs. And although there are many places and instances where we get a sense where there's a lot of proverb-like wisdom, it's best that we understand and read James as a letter of maybe one sermon or perhaps many sermons combined that were to be read and heard congregationally by the believers that were dispersed. From the outset of the letter, we learn that the believers that James is writing to are facing trials of various kinds. With their trials and persecutions in view, 
James sets out to encourage these believers, and the means by way he encourages them is by encouraging them to receive and live in light of God's word. All throughout the book of James, we find that there is an intertwined reality of faith and obedience. James desires that the believers' lives are characterized by a humble reception of God's word and then also faithful obedience to that same word. James cares very much that the believers' lives be filled with God's word. Today we'll be spending our time studying verses 17 through 25. And my hope during our last gathering of 2023 is that God will help us to see the importance of being believers who continually receive the word and who, by his grace, live his word. And that's the title of today's sermon, Receiving and Living God's Word. So let's read from God's word, James chapter 1, starting in verse 17. I'm going to ask you one more time to please stand as we honor the reading of God's word. James chapter 1, starting in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, He is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So in verse 17, we read that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. The first thing that I'd like you to note in verse 17 is the good and perfect nature of God. The good and perfect nature of God. God the Father is a giver of good and perfect gifts. And the gifts that proceed from God the Father are good and complete because he is good and complete. He lacks nothing. He is self-existing, self-sufficient, and he is completely good. 
All of God's works and acts of providence are done in accordance with his holiness. Because he is good and complete, then everything that proceeds from his hand is perfect and good and complete. Because of God's good and perfect nature, his gifts, which he bestows upon us, that proceed from him are good. We also note that God is a giver. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father. In order for us to receive gifts, there must be a giver of gifts. And James here is likely drawing from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, which was read a little bit earlier this morning. Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? All good things come down to us from heaven. Notice also the title designation of God from James in this verse. These gifts, which are good and perfect, come down to us from the Father of lights, the Father of lights. Perhaps you've read this verse in the past throughout your Bible reading and wondered, well, what does that mean? What is James pointing to? The title, Father of Lights, refers to heavenly lights, the celestial lights that we perceive from our vantage point here on earth, primarily the sun, the moon, and the stars. This title, the Father of Lights, was an ancient Jewish title for God, and it refers to him as the creator of heaven and earth. We know from Genesis chapter 1, verses 14 through 19, that God spoke the sun and the moon into existence to separate the day from the night, to separate the light from darkness. Even the sun and the moon, in all of their splendor and glory, owe their existence to their father, the father of lights. The sun and the moon serve a primary purpose of giving light, and they also reflect the nature of their Father, which we will be reminded, it points us to God. In the Word of God, we read in John, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So why does James use this designation of Father of Lights? Well, he will give us a clue here in the next part of the verse. James is pointing to the unchanging nature of God. We see that because the good and perfect gifts come from God because he is perfect, but he also is unchanging. There is no variation or shadow due to change. It's the next part of the verse. The Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow do to change. It's important that we maybe make note here that as the father of the celestial lights, he is not like those lights. From our perspective, we perceive variations in intensity of light that the sun and the moon provide to us in illuminating our world. This is due to the rotation of the earth and its orbit around the sun. 
And depending on what, you know, part of the 24-hour cycle of the Earth's rotation is in, we can see a bright, you know, afternoon sun that's scorching or a cool full moon in the evening. One of my favorite things to do, living so near to the ocean, don't get to do this often, but when we do, it's great, is going out to the beach on a summer evening, feeling the cool sand underneath your feet. Do you like doing that, or is that just me? It's a strange thing. Going out to the beach, feeling the cool sand underneath your feet, and then gazing up into the sky and beholding the glory of a sunset. The colors of the sky light up with their bright oranges, their purples, their pinks, and if you're really lucky, there's a few clouds intermixed into the sunset, and it makes for a spectacular and glorious, awe-striking experience to perceive the sunset. Then Daniel, whom you guys heard um, leave earlier in the service, he wasn't very happy about that, Um, one of his favorite things is the moon. So one of my favorite things to do with the boys whenever we get a chance is just go outside in front of our house and look up to the moon and to stare in awe and wonder that the moon is reflecting the light of the sun down to us. Sometimes when it's a really clear day, you can even see craters and, you know, different, again, varying intensities of its surface. So from our perspective, the sun and the moon have various stations in their orbit, and we can perceive the change from night to day through them. We perceive differences in light intensity and shadows, but James here juxtaposes those realities with the reality that the father of lights is not like that. God is the unchanging one. God is the father of light. In him, there is no variation or shadow due to change. Recall the words of the prophet in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. The Lord says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Or in Numbers 23, 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. So why does James believe it important for us to know this nature of God, this unchanging, perfect, complete nature of God? Well, the answer to that question is perhaps in our verses here. James is emphasizing and illuminating the perfect nature and goodness of God in contrast to our sinful natures in contrast to our sinful natures just one verse before we started reading today James warns his listeners about a deception James is concerned about believers being deceived about something and what is it that they could be deceived about look in verse 13 with me of chapter 1 in verse 13 James writes Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and is enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and in sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So in order for the hearers that James is writing to, and even for us this morning, we must be reminded quite regularly that sin and evil never originate in God. It's not possible. In God, there is only goodness. There is only holiness. From God only proceed good and perfect gifts. He is the same yesterday and today and forever. He is the great I am. He is immutable. He is never changing. So it's important for us to note the truth about who God is so that we can know who we are. As we glean a brighter understanding, a more accurate understanding from God's word about who he is, then we can properly understand who we are. We can understand our sin nature and what is required of us. How are we to be responding to this good and perfect and complete God? I want to continue to highlight that God is the giver of good gifts. Every single heartbeat within our chest, every breath that we are able to inhale and then exhale, our vision, our hearing, our strength, our reasoning, our work, our families, our homes, our cars, our Bibles, the electricity that's powering this room, the warm clothes that many of us are wearing today, all of it is a gift from God. All of it is a gift from his hand. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. And God gives graciously and in abundance to the righteous, to the good, and to the evil. But James highlights the greatest gift, the greatest gift that we can ever become recipients of, and that is this. The greatest gift that we can ever receive is the gift of being born of God, of being born again, of being saved by him. Look at verse 18 again. Verse 18 says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. James goes on to highlight here that In God's goodness and in his kindness, without any outside compelling force, he brought us forth. Brought us forth can be understood literally to give birth to. Some of the theological people like to use big theological words, and so we try to learn them and then practice them. And the big theological word is regeneration. Perhaps you have heard of that word. To give birth to us is referred often as regeneration. Let me give you one good definition of regeneration from a commentator. Quote, In regeneration, God gives birth to new spiritual life. Regeneration is a miracle of God by which the principle of new life is implanted in man and the governing disposition of his soul is made holy. The new birth is unseen by any human eye, but is able to be experienced by any human heart that turns to God 
through faith in Christ. It is evidenced by a transformed life. Close quote. So this verse, he brought us forth, is referring to a second birth. A second birth, which is not a birth like our first one. This birth is our spiritual birth. Out of his own will, out of his own desire, his own design, his own decree, God is the one who causes men and women to be born again. This same word that's used here in verse 18 is also used in verse 15, where James says that desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So that stands in contrast to what James says of God. In man, our sin brings forth, gives birth to death, but in God, the perfect and complete God, when he exercises his will, he brings forth life. The father of life. Recall when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Jesus reveals to Nicodemus that if anyone is to see or to enter the kingdom of God, they must be born again. This is due to the fact that at our first birth, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. We do not have spiritual life within us. And if we are to enter the kingdom of God, we must be born of God. The flesh only produces flesh. Humans only produce human. But the spirit produces spirit. Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And later in verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now let me ask you a question. Is this possible with man? Is it possible for us to make ourselves come alive to the things of Christ? We know that these things are impossible with man, but the good news is all things are possible with God. Because God is the giver of good and perfect gifts, then we have occasion to rejoice, to be glad, to sing praises because he is the one who is able to cause us to be born again. He is the one who is able to utterly redeem and save our souls. Our salvation is not dependent upon our power, our own strength, or our ability. It is dependent completely and wholly upon the power of Almighty God. He is able to save. All of this is a gift. It's a gift of grace. One of my favorite verses that elucidates this clearly for us with great clarity is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from 
the dead. That's good news, brother and sister. It's good news. So one question that we might have at this point is this. Well, how does God make this a reality in my life? How does God bring this about? How does he cause someone to be born again? Well, in scripture, we see that God uses means. He uses instruments. I'm a musician, so I had to use that, right? The instrumentality, the means that God uses to work saving redemption in a person's life is the word of truth. The word of truth. Look at verse 18 again with me. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. He brought us forth. He caused us to be born by the word of truth. This word of truth is the word of God. James here uses it in its broadest sense, meaning all of the Holy Scripture, but we can also understand it to refer to the word of the gospel, to the word of the gospel. James identifies himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we know that James was a hearer and a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, in verse 1, When he's writing to the believers, he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So James here proclaims and identifies that Jesus is Lord. So we can understand this word of truth to refer to the gospel truth, the good news of Christ. It's referred to this way in other places in scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6 verse 7 Paul commends himself to the believers by acknowledging his faithful preaching of the word of truth or truthful speech. And in Colossians 1.5, Paul praises God for the believers in Colossae because they have heard and received the word of truth, the gospel. Their reception of the word of truth, their receiving and understanding of the grace of God in truth is what is producing faith and love for all of the saints in that church. So then we see that God's grace is directed towards us by the means of hearing his word. This word of truth is good. It is perfect. It's sufficient for our salvation and our sanctification, which means our growing into the likeness of Jesus Christ. The word of truth is the good news of Jesus Christ, the entire body of truth, which is the word of God. We know that all of scripture is inspired, that it is God breathed by him, and it's profitable for teaching and for training in all righteousness. The word of truth has at its center a person, and that person is Jesus Christ. Every time that we gather as believers at Lighthouse Bible Church, We proclaim the word. We proclaim the living word. We proclaim the good news. You know, I think it's a good exercise. I sometimes do this in my car or in my office at work privately. If you you ever drive next to me in the freeway and you see me talking to myself, one, it happens often, and two, usually it's for a good cause. But it's good to practice proclaiming the good news. Proclaim the good news to yourself. 
in the morning. Proclaim the good news so that you are exercised in recounting all of God's goodness to us, which we know because of his word. The good news of the word of truth is the good news of Jesus Christ. It stands in contrast with the bad news, which is that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We all sense this in ourselves. We understand that we have broken God's laws, that we stand guilty if he were to judge us and examine our lives. We know that we have fallen short of his standard. And the bad news of that is that there is no way for us to make ourselves right before God in and of ourselves. And the good news is that God in his kindness and his gracious, giving, perfect nature sent his only begotten son into this world over 2,000 years ago. Jesus was born in a manger. We just celebrated that over Christmas. He grew in wisdom and stature before God and man. Jesus fulfilled the law of God perfectly. Jesus never sinned. We sang about his sinless nature. He obeyed the law of God perfectly, and then he offered himself willingly out of no coercion, no outside force. He offered himself willingly to be crucified brutally on a cross, to be crucified for the penalty of our sins, to be crucified to take on the righteous and holy and pure anger of God towards sin, to make perfect payment for the forgiveness of sin. Christ Jesus died on the cross for sinners, my friends. And he didn't just die on the cross, and he wasn't just buried, but three days, three days later, the scriptures proclaim that he was risen from the grave. Jesus has victory over sin and over death. And Jesus has commissioned his apostles and his disciples and us together today to proclaim that good news. That Jesus came and lived and he died and he rose again and he calls all people to look to him for their salvation. To receive him as their savior. That's good news. The word of truth is the word that is able to save our souls. Practice it. I practice that in the car. I don't have that written down. And I'm not showing off and don't think, oh, wow, Jorge did that really well. That's foolish. The Spirit of God is the one that helps us. The Spirit of God is the one that gifts us the ability to proclaim the goodness of Christ. I'm a wretched man. I'm the worst sinner I know in this room. I am completely inadequate to do this job. It is only by God's good gift and grace that I can stand here before you forgiven, redeemed, purchased, kept by the power of God through faith in Christ. Amen. Cling to the word of truth. Proclaim this word of truth. It's the good news of Jesus. Let's go back to the notes. James draws our attention to the purpose of bringing believers to new spiritual life by this word of truth. He says, 
Um, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This Old Testament figure would have been easily recognized by the Jewish audience as it refers to the Old Testament law that called for the first portions of the harvest to be set aside for the Lord. The first and best crops were to be offered to the Lord as an offering. In giving to the Lord of their first fruits, the people of God were living in faith and obedience, trusting God for a full future harvest. So in the same sense, those who have been brought forth by the word of truth, and perhaps he is referring to these first Jewish Christian believers, they are the kind of first installment in all of creation of the new creation which is to come. Christians are the first fruits of the coming eternal kingdom of God, and they're considered the first of many more to come in the spiritual harvest of God. And boy, hasn't that come about in all of church history. The harvest has been plentiful and God has been at work saving and redeeming sinners. So how are we to respond to this good news? How are we to live in light of all that we have just heard regarding God's good gifts, his gracious will being carried out and causing us to be born again? James goes on to show us the Christian's proper response to God's grace and saving us by his word. Look at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So there in verse 19, know this, other translations render this, this you know, and I believe that that is perhaps the better translation as it points back to verses 17 and 18. This you know. We have in view God's good and perfect gifts. We have in view his mercy, his giving of spiritual birth to us by the word of truth. Because we know these things, then we begin to understand our own sinful hearts and our inability to save ourselves. And so what is demanded is humbling of ourselves before God. With a gentle and loving pastoral tone, James goes on to encourage his listeners, his beloved brothers, to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. This admonition also applies to us, and I believe at the heart of this is the encouragement for us to be quick to hear the word of truth, to hear the word of God. We must demonstrate an attentiveness and a care for God's word. Whether we are gathering to hear the preaching of his word, whether we're gathering in a Bible study or a home group, whether we're doing our own personal study, James desires for us as believers to be attentive, to be thoughtful, in our consideration of what God's word says. 
All throughout James, we also find admonitions regarding the tongue and the importance of ruling our speech. So it's no surprise here, as we are quick to hear the word of God, he also encourages us to be slow to speak. There are many many proverbs that speak to this in scripture. There is much to be gained by way of godliness when we put to practice godly wisdom regarding our tongues. Listen to what Proverbs 17, 27 says. Proverbs 17, 27 says, whoever restrains his words has knowledge and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. And in chapter 18, verse 2, this one kind of pricked me in the heart a little bit a few months ago when I read it. It says, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his own opinion. Pause. So built into this instruction of being quick to hear the word, we also have the admonition to be slow to speak. I believe that interconnected with slow to speak is this idea of anger. He says, be slow to speak and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Oftentimes, The lack of wisdom is expressed through hasty speech, speaking very quickly, not giving much thought or consideration to what we ought to say. Oftentimes, ungodly anger demonstrates itself through our speech. Or am I the only one that that's happened to? So put simply, the anger of man is focused on man and By God's grace, we've heard quite a few sermons over the last few months that have helped us to think through righteous anger versus ungodly man-centered anger. Man-centered anger is rooted in man's unmet desires and expectations, and it does not have the righteousness of God in sight. In James chapter 4, just a few chapters later, we see that there is anger, that there's wars and fights and quarrels among the believers. And James rightly identifies that this is due to an ungodly anger that is rooted in self-serving desires. The righteousness of God then is not produced by the anger of man. This righteousness that James writes about can be understood as the result of God's righteous rules and decrees being obeyed. When man acts out rashly in man-centered anger, he doesn't seek to live in the holiness and goodness of God's righteous rules. James desires that the believers would live in accordance to godly wisdom, one that stands in contrast to early wisdom, And this wisdom would be demonstrated by an eagerness to hear God's word, an attentiveness to the word of truth. That believers would be characterized by those that speak in a way that is beneficial to all who hear. That we use our words to build up 
instead of tearing down. And finally, that believers' lives will be characterized by turning away from sin. And here we see sinful anger. A life of faith in God is a life of repentance, which means turning away, a 180 turn. We turn away from sin and we turn to faith. We turn to believing, trusting, and receiving the word of truth. Look at verse 21, James chapter 1, verse 21. James writes, therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We are indeed called to a life that turns away from sin, from rampant wickedness. And in order for anyone to take heed of the principal command in this verse, which is to receive with meekness the implanted word, we must put away, we must turn away from our sin. The call of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ is the call to believe in him as the only one who can save you from your sin. And that it involves, placing your faith in Christ involves with it a turning away from that very same sin that Jesus has saved you from. As fallen sinners, the propensity for sin in our flesh is always present. And when we are not watchful and we allow it to have rule over us, it produces death and it puts a barrier between us and God, making it so that we are not attentive or desiring his word. Scripture reads, or sorry, teaches us that the sins, sin grieves the Holy Spirit and makes us dull to the things of God. But by God's grace and with the strength that he provides by his spirit, we can turn and lay aside from the things that plague us and draw near to the Lord. His call is a call of grace to every sinner. When we sin, we turn to him and we beg his forgiveness and we receive his forgiveness. Listen to this encouragement from Thomas Watson. This was written in the 1600s. He talks about this reality of sin still be present in the life of believers. And he admonishes us to call out to God for help. He says, quote, Let the sense of this, the reality of sin, make us daily look up to heaven for help. Beg Christ's blood to wash away the guilt of sin and his spirit to mortify the power of it. Beg further degrees of grace. Though grace cannot make sin not to be, yet it makes it not to reign. Close quote. Brother and sister, we must take heed to James' reminders of the importance of turning away from sin. He desires for us to receive in humility the implanted word. James is not writing to unbelievers. He is writing to those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we understand from James's admonition that there is this need to continually receive God's word. We continually are awake. We continually are aware of sin's propensity to make us turn away from God. 
We confess our sins before the Lord. We receive his grace by way of forgiveness. And we continue to receive the implanted word. It's important for us to note this. There is a continuing need for us to receive the word. This word in verse 18, I'm sorry, in verse 21, receive with meekness this implanted word still refers to this word of truth, which we read about in verse 18. The very same word that God uses to give a spiritual birth is the word which we are to continue to receive on a day-to-day basis. So what are some of the ways that we can apply this right now? Right in the middle of the sermon, as we think through, receive with meekness the implanted word. Let me begin by saying this. We begin by acknowledging our need for help. The Spirit of God must help us to grow the desire for his word, to grow an appetite to receive the word of truth. And then when we ask God for help in that, I believe pretty confidently that God helps us in that because we are asking in accordance to his will. When we ask him things that are in accordance to his will, he is gracious to grant those things. So as we pray, Lord, would you help me to receive your word continually? God will help. Secondly, but I would put this as first importance as the what we do, is that we commit to being here. We commit to meeting week by week in this gathering to receive God's word as it is preached. Our pastor faithfully declares God's word to us week by week. He puts in many hours of preparation and his desire is for us to receive the word and to live in light of it. So we come and we meet here. Next, we commit to being part of a home group. In our home groups, we review the sermon from Sunday, we review the teaching, but then we seek to help one another live it, to apply it to our lives. Here's what we heard from Sunday's sermon. Now, how can we apply it and live, be doers of God's word together? And then lastly, if you are a person who likes to set out and make goals, I think many of us do, even if we think, I don't want to make New Year's resolutions. Well, that's my resolution right there, right? I'm not going to make any New Year's resolutions. But if you like to set out to make goals, we, we do this all the time in many ways and in many, many areas of our lives. How about that we set out Bible memorization as one of our goals? Every single week, Pastor Ben or someone in the office puts this together and includes the memory verses from Truth Trackers. It's a question and answer. Where does God want me to keep the Bible is the question for this week if you have your bulletin. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's Deuteronomy 6, 6. Scripture memorization is of great profit, and I'm afraid that we oftentimes neglect it to our own harm. Bible reading plans are also very, very helpful to many people. There is many Bible reading plans. They abound. Picking one that helps. How about listening to the scriptures? Some of you have commutes when you go to work. If you have a Bible app, you probably have different voices of people that can read the Bible to you. Kind of a silly pragmatic note, but sometimes listening to God's word even in your car can be a great way to receive the implanted word. I think this next point here is that it takes humility to acknowledge 
our need for his word. And James highlights this for us. You see, God does not come near to those who in pride and self-sufficiency seek to make themselves holy or to justify themselves before him. God calls us to humble ourselves before him to recognize our great need of his grace and of his love and to receive in humility the implanted word which is able to save our souls. In humbling ourselves before the Lord, we are in a sense making our hearts the soft, fertile soil which is required in order for God's Word, the seed of his word, to be implanted in us. The word implanted here in verse 21, receive with meekness the implanted word. It literally refers to the planting of a seed in soil. A humble heart is fertile ground, one in which the word of God is implanted by him, and it brings about our salvation It brings about our growth. It produces fruit. And when our lives produce spiritual fruit, Jesus says that this glorifies the Father. We must be humble before him. This word that we are to receive in humility is able to save our souls. I want to just make one note of this. This word is the word the instrument by which God brings new life to us. Recall the passage in Romans chapter 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. So when we receive the gospel, we are saved, but this same word is the one that transforms our minds. It renews our minds and it helps us to know the perfect will of God. And this word of truth, which is able to save our souls, does this in a final and complete way. God is the giver of good and perfect gifts, of complete gifts, and this salvation of our souls that James writes about in this verse has in view the final day, the day of Christ. This word, when received in humility and meekness, saves us and keeps us to the end. Amen? So we are to receive the word with humility, and yet again, we are warned by James as if we might need further reminders not to be deceived. Receiving the implanted word in humility is not only mental assent. He emphasizes that there is urgent need for us to respond to this word in doing, in obedience. Look at verses 22 through 25 with me. James writes, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It is possible that there was a disconnect with the believers in the early church regarding the place of faith 
and good works. If you will recall in James chapter 2, he writes in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And in verse 18, he said, But someone will say, Well, you have faith and I have works. And James writes, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. This is a tension that we all experience probably on a quite regular basis. There's an internal wrestling of our flesh with the Spirit of God when it comes to being doers of God's word, when it comes to obeying the imperative commands of Scripture. It does feel like a dilemma. This is due to sin's presence in our lives, and by God's grace, we have his word to remind us of the importance of living a life of obedience to him. We do not throw out obedience when we preach faith as the means for salvation. When we preach that we are saved through faith alone, in Christ alone, baked into that cake is obedience. Faith in Christ alone for our justification. But that faith produces a transformed life. That faith produces a life that looks to the perfect law of liberty for how we ought to find our joy and our rest. James likens the hearer only to one who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror but then goes away from that mirror and forgets what he was like. What we are to see here as significant is the temporary nature of looking into that mirror. Looking into a mirror reveals for a short moment of time the reality of what we look like. Some of us like what we see, some of us don't. I have a hard time with that sometimes. However... As soon as we move on from looking at that mirror, we are no longer being affected by what that mirror shows us. We forget about what we look like and we move on to other things. Our lives are little affected or changed by the glance in the mirror. And this is what we are likened to if we are only hearers of the word, but not doers. If we are only hearers, there is only a temporary effect. But alternatively, when we look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and we continue in it, he uses the word perseveres. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. When we look, when we continue in it, when we continue in the law of liberty and we remain, we are not like just hearers who forget, but we are like doers who act. And he finishes by saying that we will be blessed in our doing. So I think the main point here is of significance and importance is the continuing in the word the continuing and persevering in the law of liberty by doing what God's word says. It's interesting that James now refers to the word of truth as the law of liberty. Did you notice that as we were reading that? 
The word of truth is now referred to as the law of liberty. And I think this demonstrates a couple of things for us. It demonstrates the requirement, the requirement of obedience to God's law, but also to the nature of this law. The law of liberty. God's law is the one that frees us from living as slaves to sin. This law of liberty enables us, as we fix our eyes on it, to live as bondservants to righteousness. There's a lie that has been circling around humanity since the very beginning, and that's this. If we are simply allowed to live our lives free from any law, free from any outside rule, don't tell me what to do, that perspective. If we are able to live this way, then we will truly be free and happy. Right? That's the lie. Did God really say that? You won't die. Don't listen to the law of liberty. But instead, follow the deception. This is a lie from Satan, brother and sister. It is only when we live according to God's perfect law of liberty, his word of truth, that we find true freedom and true liberty. You see, before God saves us, we are in bondage to sin. But when God saves us through his word of truth, by faith in Christ, we are free to live in joyful obedience to his perfect commands and his perfect precepts. There truly is happiness and joy to be experienced when we live according to the perfect law of liberty. Now, perhaps there's a tension in your heart. I've had this many times, so I think it's okay to acknowledge it. Isn't there this idea in our culture at large that Christianity isn't about doing things, in fact, one of my students at the school that I teach at a few months ago told me, Mr. Samaniego, before you explain the gospel to me, I thought Christianity was just a bunch of rules. It's just a bunch of do's and don'ts. There's this idea that proclaiming obedience to God's word is somehow foreign to what Jesus taught. That Jesus simply proclaimed faith and love and acceptance be who you are. Oh boy, in our culture today, is there a confusion about identity? Everyone is so fixated on saying, this is what I identify as. I identify as this person, as that person. And many times those connections that they attribute to their identity are rooted on, on things that are vapor, that are not eternal, that are fading away. There's much confusion when we abandon the truth of God's revealed word. Jesus himself taught us the importance of faith in him for salvation and the importance of putting his word into practice in our lives. Listen to his words in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. This was read earlier. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. This is Jesus speaking, friend. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them 
will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So as we conclude our time together today, I think with a sermon like this, it's very important for us to really consider, to think deeply how we can respond to God's word in faith and in obedience. Let me offer you some thoughts by way of application as we anticipate concluding our final Sunday gathering of the year and anticipate the new year tomorrow. So first, will you take some time today at some point to meditate on the good and perfect nature of God? Will you take time to think deeply on how good God has been to you in Jesus Christ? Because of his goodness, he caused you to be born of the spirit through the word of truth, the word of the gospel, which we rejoiced in proclaiming together today. Will you take time to praise God in prayer for all of his abundant goodness and all of his benefits? This is a real point of application, friend taking time to thoughtfully reflect and to praise God for his goodness. Secondly, will you take heed to James' admonition to lay aside all sin and wickedness, to confess and turn away from sin, and in humility to continually receive the word of God, which is able to save your soul. God's will for our lives is that we would have life abundantly in Jesus Christ, And his blessings come from a life that is offered to him in obedience and faith. Friend, if there are any sins that are besetting you today, would you confess them to the Lord and receive his gracious gift of forgiveness? Will you commit today, by God's help, to be one who is regularly in meekness and humility, receiving the implanted word which is able to save your soul. And then lastly, if you are one today who has not yet believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, this is my question for you. Will you receive Jesus today? Jesus Christ came to this world to die for sinners um, of whom we all are. Jesus demonstrates his love for the world and that he gave himself willingly to be crucified on the cross so that all who believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He offers his grace to you today. We beg you, receive Christ. Would you pray with me?